Hi, this is Dr. Hughes. We are back after a long holiday vacation for me. I started a little bit earlier than I had anticipated. I thought I'd be able to record the male sexual response cycle episode before the Thanksgiving break, but I decided to start a day early. So I apologize, those of you that were waiting for the male sexual response cycle discussion. Uh, so today we'll we'll pick up right there, um, as we ended last time with the female sexual response cycle. I'd like to go through the male sexual response uh, response cycle with you today. Now, let me just couch this with the what I typically say. We're we're using a lot of reverence as we're talking about sexuality, as we're talking about the male sexual organs, female sexual organs, but I'm going to be very explicit and very clear um, as that's what we've needed culturally as a people, a lot of clear discussion surrounding sexuality, but in a very reverenced way. So the the other thing the other uh, the other point that I wanted to make in couching this this uh, discussion is that as a reminder the the male sexual response cycle just like the female sexual response cycle is not a linear progression is not a one step um, leads to another step but that's how um, it's a lot easier to discuss it to talk about it in that way as if there's a distinct phase that is separate from the others um, however sexual desire if you you know just thinking about it 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 wouldn't make much sense for most people or for a lot of us to only have sexual desire uh, prior to any physical touch or any physiological arousal. If sexual desire and arousal and orgasm are different, then then that would be the same as saying when one has an orgasm, they're experiencing no sexual desire. And I think that can be the case for plenty of people. However, the large majority of people that are experiencing an orgasm during consen- consensual sex, especially consensual sex with one's partner, they're going to experience sexual desire. So that's a uh, an illustration of how one phase is not distinct and separate from the rest. But we are talking about them almost as if they are distinct and separate. So we'll begin in the, the male sexual desire phase. So for men, this is characterized a lot more by sexual thoughts, visual stimuli, that type of thing over the relationship quality or the context of the relationship. Uh, While relationship is very important for most monogamous men, and I would say maybe even more so important for uh, monogamous um, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, still sexual thoughts and visual stimuli are uh, more um, of a drive or motivator towards sexual intimacy than just relationship quality when compared to women. So I want to highlight that last part, when compared to women in our culture and in monogamous relationships. Uh, Men still value the relationship, but visual stimuli, thoughts or fantasy, appropriate thoughts, appropriate fantasy about one's spouse or about sexual intimacy, um, those are more characteristic of men during the sexual response cycle phase of desire. Plenty of women long for and enjoy visual stimuli, sexual fantasies, sexual thoughts, um, 
outside of the context of a healthy connected relationship um, just like men do but more characteristically you'll find that you'll find that in men there's lots of reasons why one is men are socialized to be that way um, it's uh, you know we've talked in prior discussions that um, men oftentimes become sexual in relation to oneself where women are more sexual in relation to to another um, it's more deemed more socially appropriate whether that's right or wrong uh, for men to be more sexual uh, um, in alone uh, alone as individuals as well as in partnered relationships where it's not as deemed socially appropriate for women and especially if you look at our in our culture um, there's women are not really taught to be sexual beings by themselves uh, you know not not that they would act on sexual thought or fantasy by themselves but just that they they're not taught that it's okay to to have sexual desire, have sexual thought, have sexual fantasy, um, uh, you know, if they're not acting on that, if they're not trying to, you know, pursue or entertain that, that, that that's just a normal part of the female sexual experience where women aren't really taught that in our culture. And so because they're not taught that that's normal or given that sexual script, um, that that's stereotypical for a Latter-day Saint woman, women run from any thought or fantasy that that might creep into their their mind and think that it's um, bad or undesirable versus accepting that they are sexual beings and being okay with the fact that they're sexual beings and then moving their thoughts to things that are more appropriate for the context of, of their life. So, um, okay, going back to... Um, men during the desire phase there's a lot of research that, that looks at um, sexual stimulation alone for men and women and does that engender sexual desire for one sex over the other sex and what the research shows is that when men are provided with sexual stimulation alone that sexual stimulation is more likely for men to lead to um, sexual desire than when women are provided sexual stimulation alone so that that bolsters this idea this concept that men are more uh, uh, a little bit more focused on uh, sexual stimulation, the physiological process of sexuality, than their female counterparts. Women, once again, it's more nested within the relationship. Men, uh, so if there's not that closeness, that connection, that bond in the relationship, then sexual stimulation alone, or then sexual stimulation, um, is it, it by itself is not going to facilitate or move a woman typically to sexual desire. Whereas if a man doesn't have that connection, closeness, uh, bonding within their relationships, sexual stimulation alone may actually still, in fact, move them uh, towards sexual desire. So it just that research just supports that that i that idea. Uh, the other another point that I wanted to make is that oftentimes men, as a in response to stress, and I've mentioned this briefly in other episodes in response to stress uh, men will uh 
program themselves or train themselves in youth oftentimes to go to uh, sexual stimulation or sexual arousal for uh, emotional regulation, regulating the, the stress response. And so oftentimes you'll, you'll see that still in marital relationships. And while that's a fine way to respond to stress, if it's the only way or if it's the um, only way that a couple is sexually intimate um, when there is a stress and the man responds to the stress, then it can be really unhealthy for the couple. Also, uh, as discussed, men are more aware of their sexual desire than than women. It's uh, just more uh, socially appropriate in uh, in the LDS culture. Uh, excuse me, in in uh, the Latter Day Saint culture, uh, for men to be both priesthood holders and sexual beings, where it's not as culturally relevant. Although I'm working really hard on making this change for women to have uh, be righteous. Uh, uh, women in the gospel and also to be um, uh, sexual beings and have sexual des- desire and sexual longings and uh, and so uh, this phase is more this desire phase in the sexual response cycle is a little bit easier for men to arrive at or to be okay with or uh, to move to we're going to transition away from the desire phase to the arousal phase. The desire phase is often and and should be present during the arousal phase, but it doesn't necessarily have to be there in the arousal phase. As we've talked about with Rosemary Basson's sexual response cycle, a lot of times men, um, but oftentimes women more so than men, will have physiological you know, be open to and uh, sexual intimacy, and therefore have more physiological touch that then uh, builds their arousal, and then desire uh, follows. So, as the the arousal or excitement phase happens for men, their tes- their uh, not, excuse me, not their testicles, their penis uh, fills with blood or vasocongestion. So the penis in, is engorged with blood, and that produces. An erection. So oftentimes, it's it's more apparent or more obvious as a man is sexually aroused than a a woman or a female is sexually aroused. Um, with the external sexual genitalia, it, it makes it a, a lot easier for men in their youth to be aware of this arousal, know what facilitates that, know what um, that reduces that arousal, and um, and and. So the sexual response cycle becomes, in uh, in some ways, easier because of this. The male scrotum also thickens during this phase. The spermatic cord shortens. Uh, there's the pre-ejaculate or pre-cum, as it's termed, just sort of uh, lay terms, is, is this pre-cum. And that's when the cowper's gland secretes fluid. And that's to change the acidity level in the urethra. Uh, as I said, I think two episodes ago, insemination can happen with this Cowper's gland uh, fluid that's secreted. And men, uh, just to kind of cap off this arousal phase, men are capable of moving from the desire to the arousal phase in a few seconds, um, in part because of the sexual programming 
Uh, a lot of men teach themselves in youth to go into the bathroom very quickly, sexually stimulate, and move to arousal and have an orgasm and, uh, and clean themselves up and exit the restroom or the, the bathroom before any family members would have any clue of what's happening. So as, as this process is taking place, uh, youth or men are sexually programming themselves. Uh, there's a lot of other things that go into to play here, especially as Latter-day Saints, so uh, guilt and shame um, all are, um, are oftentimes present with this. Um, but this is a typical process for a, a young man, even in our culture, to um, to train themselves or program themselves to move through the sexual response cycle in such a quick and uh, efficient, I guess you could say, fashion. So as uh, adults, as partners, as spouses, uh, men oftentimes go into this this place, the state of mind, this way of being sexual with their spouse, but sadly their spouse is their uh, eternal companion. Their spouse is longing for connection and um, not wanting to rush through, not wanting to focus on intercourse per se or orgasm per se, but on the closeness that they feel, on the love that they have in their relationship, on making their sexual encounter the sacrament of their marriage. And that sacrament could be highly erotic, but eroticism is usually not uh, synonymous with uh, efficient sexual activity. So let's move to the plateau phase for, for men. In this phase, uh, the testes increase in size, and this can be as much as uh, 50%. Semen, um, which are collected from, from uh, it's a collection of fluids from all over the male sexual, uh, uh, male sexual anatomy, male sexual uh, reproduction, system. Um, are co- it's collected from the testes, from the seminal vesicles, from the capper's gland, from the prostate, um, all of these different um, areas of, of the body, um, of the male body. This fluid is collected and it's called uh, semen. And um, it, it collects at the, the base of the penis um, internally and in, in different structures um, awaiting orgasm for, for release. For men, this this phase can um, you know this is not exact. I'm not saying it's if anywhere in between uh, five to forty five, but it it could it could range in that time time span. Um, it could be a matter of a couple of minutes, five minutes, or it could go all the way up to um, you know forty five minutes during this this plateau phase. But oftentimes, like I said earlier because of the way that youth and uh, male youth program themselves, this phase is usually going to, to move pretty quickly. 
and it ends the the plateau phase ends similar to it to how it ends for women um women reach the moment of orgasmic inevitability and men reach the the moment of ejaculatory inevitability and this is the state in which they're going to have an ejaculation um, whether they stop all sexual activity or continue doing whatever it may be thrusting or or whatnot um and um the last thing i wanted to note about this um about this stage is and i've seen i've 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 heard so many couples uh, come into my office and talk about this. The man, or even the the, the woman, might say um, he says that it causes him a lot of pain. It's excru- excruciating pain, and it's like um, uh, torture for him to have this much arousal and not have an orgasm, not move to the what they're saying, not move to the next phase of the sexual response cycle. Um, so I f- I feel as if. Uh, he needs to have an orgasm, or I need to give him that orgasm, or um, or that he he's going to be in a lot of pain, or it might cause some internal damage. And while it may not be enjoyable to move from a place of high physiological, um, uh, psychological arousal to to uh, you know not having an orgasm and then uh, that arousal fading. It's not going to cause any internal damage. That's a myth that's out there that if a man doesn't have an orgasm during sexual activity, it's going to cause damage. That's that's just uh, you know if women were to say I, you know if I don't have an orgasm, it's going to cause damage. You know because so many women do not have orgasms, and this is sad, but a lot of women do not have orgasms during sexual activity. Um, we would ha- have, if that were the case, so many women that have internal uh, issues because of the lack of of orgasm, and so it's you know it's the same for men as it is for women. It's not enjoyable. It's not fun to to um, if one longs for or wants to have an orgasm and can to not have that orgasm because what happens is um, there's there's uh, the vasocongestion um, ends and the blood returns to the other parts of the body, but it does so in a much slower fashion. Um, the man, in this case, where we're talking about the male sexual response cycle, is awaiting that release, that chemical, um, those chemicals to be produced that we'll talk about in the next phase. Um, so you've got doc, uh, dopamine, oxytocin, um, endorphins, uh, all of these chemicals are going to be released and are being released during sexual activity, but are released in much higher doses during orgasm, during the orgasm phase. And so, um, it, it may cause a lot of distress because they're anticipating that release, um, but it 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 is not going to cause any internal pain um and if it were to cause internal pain that's cause for them to go see uh, a, a medical doctor um because that should not be the case and that would be very rare in my opinion if that were to to happen physiological pain being uh, the byproduct of uh no orgasm or the absence of orgasm so during the orgasm phase for men, uh, there are contractions that happen, internal and external contractions, and these internal contractions force the semen and the ejaculate to be released. Um, 
from each of these respective internal structures that I mentioned in the phase before where they're collected and just sort of anticipating ejaculation. And uh, they, the semen and, and ejaculate get expelled through the urethra, um, which is different than um, is the case for women. When there is lubrication, it does not come through the urethra. It comes through um, lots of different structures in the, um, the vaginal canal and um, in, in the labia. Um, these internal contractions uh, occur in the vas deferens, in the seminal vesicles, and the prostate gland. Uh, there's other muscle tightening, like I mentioned before, large muscle groups, legs, uh, feet. That's all normal during this phase. And actually, in some instances, um, a man or a woman in that in that case uh, um, can actually sort of bring about an orgasm quicker sometimes by mimicking uh, these these orgasmic responses. The size of the penis significantly de decreases fairly soon after ejaculation, and um, there's a general relaxation and release of all the chemicals that I mentioned moments before, dopamine, oxytocin, oxytocin and endorphins. Okay, so the the last phase that I want to talk about, and as I talk about this phase, I want you to also be thinking about um, the... the um, uh, my mind just blinked. Um, the afterplay stage. So you have foreplay, um, and I want you to be thinking about this concept or this idea of afterplay because it's something that's missed in really in in most of parts of the world and in most sexual relationships. Uh, usually, uh, there's this resolution phase where physiological changes happen, and uh, what takes place during that this process that I'm going to be uh, discussing with you is the husband and wife, um, you know clean things up, get their clothes back on, maybe they lay down and and uh, relax or get something to eat or fall asleep, um, but there typically is, is not an afterplay, um, which may look similar to or very different from the foreplay stage, um, and I'll talk about that as, as I end this, um, this sexual response cycle phase of the resolution. So, uh, blood leaves the the pelvic area um, that vasocongestion disperses. Uh, the penis returns to its unaroused size. The testicles descend. They they ascend um, before um, and and then descend as changes are are uh, requisite for anticipating orgasm and um, and the the uh, testicles actually um, will will move further away from and closer to the body throughout a man's day as um, as the temperature changes for him because what's happening is the the body is um, subconsciously keeping the right temperature for um, for 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 the semen so that um, it's viable and um, and healthy Okay, so uh, there's no refractory, or there's a, there's a refractory period for men. Uh, that refractory period can last anywhere from uh, a matter of minutes, five minutes, all the way to you know 24 hours, or or then some, depending on the man and his and the man's age. So what may have been 
seven minutes for a man, let's say, in in his youth or in his 20s, um, maybe um, 12 hours or two hours or an hour in his in his 50s or in his 40s or, or in his 70s. Um, so it varies from man to man, and, and depending on age, usually as the man ages, that refractory period increases. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of this discussion, um, men don't need the same time frame that, that, um, that women need generally to move through all of these different phases of the sexual response cycle. And as I said, these phases being way more dynamic than I've, I've discussed, um, but as a way to understand them, I simplified them quite a bit. Um, and because, um, men don't typically need as long, it's important for couples to learn how to pace themselves. Um, and, uh, I, I talk a lot of times with my couples about a sexual continuum. And on this continuum, there's, there are things that are a one or a two, you know, so on the far end of this continuum, as far in terms of, of arousal, what's arousing and interesting. And these could be um, actions or thoughts or, um, uh, you know, thing, things that they, they feel um, from their spouse or on their own body, um, clear up to um, you know, let's say a 10, we'll make the scale, uh, one to 10. And let's say the things on, on the other end of the spectrum on, uh, that are a nine or a 10 are the things that are the most arousing for this individual. And a lot of times what youth do, male youth do is, um, they train themselves to move from, uh, very low on the desire scale, maybe fleeting thoughts all the way up to a quick 10 and orgasm or quick tends to uh, bring about an orgasm and uh, what as they do that throughout time um, they sort of bring this with them into their sexual uh, relationship with their spouse and um, and it's very detrimental to the relationship very detrimental to sexual satisfaction and to mutual satisfaction and so uh, a pacing or orchestrating sexual arousal, the sexual arousal continuum is really vital to learn how um, to, 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 I like the idea of uh, this orchestration, um, thinking of, uh, you know, something that slowly builds or maybe even quickly builds and then descends and then builds back up some and descends again, um, learning to um, artistically um, build one's arousal and enjoy the ebb and flow of physiological and emotional and uh, sexual arousal with one's uh, eternal companion so that their their spouse or their partner can also build their arousal. Um, and as the couple learns to uh, pace together, um, the sexual response cycle for, for both can be a lot more satisfying because it is not, um, the woman, the, the wife doesn't typically have to either rush and figure out a way to, to rush so that she can enjoy the sexual encounter or just uh, sort of give up and not experience 
sexual arousal as her spouse moves more quickly through. Um, in this way, they go through the sexual, res- the, the sexual activity as a couple. And maybe one has an orgasm, maybe both of them do, maybe neither of them do, but as they learn to orchestrate their sexual arousal and become an intimate sexual team, the, this sexual, these sexual encounters that they participate in become much more fulfilling and, um, and leave the couple um, feeling much more um, intertwined and one, and in that way becoming more like a god and a goddess, um, becoming more as, as they should be, and as, um, as we discuss, uh, a sexual relationship, um, they, I guess, uh, what a sexual, the healthy sexual relationship within, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should look like, um, where the husband and the wife, uh, become this intimate sexual team that brings them closer to Godhood. So that's it for me today. I will most likely have a chance to record another episode, uh, maybe a couple more episodes this week. So stay tuned for those. Uh, This is just a therapist sitting in an armchair talking about sex. Hi, this is Dr. Hughes back again for another episode. Today we're going to be moving over to some gender differences in terms of sexuality. But first, I wanted to briefly mention that I came to the realization that my last episode on male sexuality for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, had an issue with uploading, and so no one's been able to, to listen to that episode yet. So I am trying to work it out on my end. I might have to record that episode again, which is frustrating because it was a really good episode. Um, and so I, I hope that I'll have some time to, to do that today. But I know that there were a number of you that were waiting and anticipating that. So um, I will try as hard as I can to make that available for everyone today, uh, if not record it again today and and make that available. So I am in the process of working on that. I continue to be really just excited about the number of listeners that we have. There are several hundreds of people that have been listening to to these episodes and this podcast and um, just just excited. I'm just really excited to be able to continue to discuss sexuality with all of you, I presumably uh, mostly members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, I think there are a number of you that uh, are of another faith or are uh, people that value spirituality that are also listening. Um, so I'm, uh, you know, I thank you once again for for listening and continuing to come back and allowing this podcast to to grow. So first off, I, I'd like to jump in and talk about uh, something that that in the field of sex therapy we call um, male centric uh, and and female centric sexuality in in the media and also in pornography um and you know so so books media uh pornography just about everything that's out there um and these can be clean books clean media um not pornographic in nature there's um 
it's inundated with a view of sexuality and therefore scripts of sexuality that are more fitting for men. And I say more fitting because they are not solely uh, the way that men experience sexuality, but they're um, in large part a, a, a way that men experience and express sexuality. And uh, and so this male-centric view of sexual expression, sexual desire, sexual arousal, sexual response cycle, um, sexual experience that's being conveyed um, is is you know, it's helpful for a number of people that are out there. It sort of provides a model or idea of, uh, of how one experiences sexuality. But the frustrating thing of that, uh, of it is, is that this male-centric view of sexuality doesn't fit for a lot of women, and especially a lot of conservative women that are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so what happens is there are a lot of these women that are out there and, and these couples that are out there that are wondering if there's something wrong uh, with with them or with, um, you know, being concerned that maybe their, their spouse isn't experiencing sexuality in the quote-unquote right way. And, um, and you know, rightfully so that they're concerned about this because most of what we read and see and hear um, is this male-centric view. Um, but I, I'd like to open everyone's eyes to um, the idea that this male-centric view that's been dominant in, in media and in the, the world is not the only way of experiencing and expressing sexuality. Uh, it's not the only way of building sexual desire, that there's also a female-centric view of, of doing this. And even more than that, that there are multiple um, avenues for experiencing, expressing, and honoring one's sexuality um, that that exist in the world. And there's no, you know, set number. There um, is no right or wrong way. But um, what happens is there there are a lot of women that are out there that are concerned that because they don't experience sexual arousal the way that their spouse does, that there's something wrong with them. And there's also a lot of men that are out there that um, that feel as if there is something wrong with them because they don't have the, the level of desire or the sexual interest or fantasy that other um, men that are being portrayed in the world or expressing themselves in the world are, are saying fits for men or, or fits for women. And so what I'd like to do today, and we've talked about this, this view of male-centric sexuality um, before, but I, I wanted to start off today with um, recapping this because it will relate to the other topics that will be discussed today. Um, but I, I really want to expand your view and idea of what sexuality is and means and might look like and in, include um, or allow kind of allow a space to exist where um, what has uh, not been 
expressed or seen by you or um, heard by you in, in the world in terms of what sexuality is, um, that, that even though you haven't seen that or heard that, that there, there is a very real possibility of that, that existing, um, that something that turns you on or that is arousing to you or builds your desire or um, allows you to long for or anticipate positively a sexual encounter or come to climax um, during a sexual encounter, um, that it's okay if those things are not within the, the realm or the expression of the, you know, the world, uh, the online world, the, um, you know, books and media, uh, or what you're, uh, you may have heard from friends or possibly even family members concerning their sexuality that, um, that just because the way that you build your arousal what you like to focus on or anticipate during sexual intimacy, um, that, 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 that there is a space for that and that that's okay. Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, thought out there in the world that everyone sort of comes pre-wired with the, the, the correct or the only, uh, way or couple of ways to experience sexuality. And, um, and that's just, um, and that's just small minded thinking and, um, you know, that, that it would be that way uh, that us as eternal, uh, beings, as children of, uh, heavenly father, that we would be so limited in how we, uh, experience and express sexuality. I love the idea that each, each of us, um, as sons and daughters of Heavenly Father, that we come as to this earth, uh, to existence, as spirits, as sexual beings, that we are sexual in nature. But the way in which we experience and express sexuality differs just as much as the the differing in our fingerprints, in um, our genetic DNA, in the uh, just as it differs just as uh, the way that our personalities differ, and so uh, it it too should follow that as we are so very different and so unique as sons and daughters of Heavenly Father, that so too would be our sexuality. The way that we express and we experience sexuality differs so greatly. And I think it's um, a tragedy that the world has put forth some limited views of how of what that looks like. Um, and it is that it is assumed that there are not other ways of experiencing and expressing one's sexuality outside of uh, what what has been provided in the world. And so, um, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I'm excited to be able to to talk and um, expand your minds to this idea that that there can be so much more in terms of. Um, experience and expression um, than what than what um, a lot of us has have felt limited to, and um, the the um, the world does have some other ideas of um, how one or a couple expresses and experiences sexuality. Some of which may very well be in line with. Um, 
us becoming like uh, a god as we experience our um as we experience and express sexuality um but other views that have been placed out there by the world are are far from that and so it's important for the couple and the individual to really check in with themselves and check in with um with heavenly father concerning these these ways of expressing their sexuality um satan does a really uh, sadly a really good job of uh, convoluting things so um this idea that there are other ways that we experience and express sexuality um satan knows that that's very real and so what he's done is he's fabricated some um some uh positive ways that vary from the traditional ones that have been, been placed out there, the, the traditional ideas that have been placed out there. But he has also included some ways of experiencing and expressing sexuality that are very negative, that are very damaging to the soul and, and to the spirit and to couple relationships and to healthy sexuality. And so it it behooves each of us members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to be uh, finely tuned in as individuals and as a, a couple to uh, healthy ways, healthy variations of expressing and experiencing sexuality. So within, nested within that idea and that concept, I want to move over to the discussion of sexual fantasy um, because it's, it's, um, it, it's an interesting topic, especially in my, my therapy room when the idea or the topic is brought up by a couple or an individual or even at times by me as the therapist or one of my therapists with their their clients um it's always interesting to see how the uh, how everyone in the room responds because there are some couples and some individuals that don't bat an eye that are excited that we're talking about that topic that have themselves very much talked about that topic. And then there are others that feel a lot of anxiety, a lot of hesitancy and, um, um, a lot of distress as that topic is brought up. And in my opinion, that is because sexual fantasy has been twisted and turned um, by the world, by Satan, to be something um, that can be really damaging in one's life, that can lead to sin, that can lead to affairs. Um, however, sexual fantasy in and of itself, within the right context, is a beautiful thing. It's akin to uh, sexual fantasy is akin to thinking about and anticipating a nice dinner with one spouse where there's enough time to sort of just soak in the being in the presence of the other person and to be able to soak in the the uh, the relationship and the connection and to be able to have a deep conversation 
um, and um, and and to, so to to long for and desire um, a romantic date or a deep uh, connection um, with one's spouse. Um, so to to fantasize and anticipate and look forward to um, this vacation that you have with your spouse or this. Um, you know, walk around the park, uh, the the park, or the block that you do with your spouse every other night, or um, or this time that you have at night to sit down on the couch and just kind of look at each other and talk and feel close and connected. That those are all okay ways of us expressing or or fantasizing. And there's um, an idea, an incorrect idea out there um, that, that we should not fantasize about sexual expression in our relationship in a, in a, um, in a, in a way that is even ordained of God, you know, the sexual expression between husband and wife. There's an idea out there that that is um, unhealthy, that that's not okay, that that's, um, that that's detrimental to an individual and to a couple's relationship. But that's entirely false because as, as one anticipates and looks forward to um, healthy versions of sexual expression, and this is so wide-ranging, this idea of healthy versions. So I'm not thinking of one or two specific ways or only one position because as we've discussed before, sexual expression, um, healthy sexual expression can be um, a a very reverent, very calm, very uh, quiet, very, um, you know, just sort of um, extremely um, uh, relaxing sort of expression as, as, uh, you, you, um, as a lot of people might assume, um, uh, that, uh, a couple that's, that's sealed in the temple might, it might express themselves, might have sexual intercourse with each other, but, uh, spirituality and, um, and healthy sexuality can also exist in a really, um, vibrant, lively, erotic, and um, and maybe even wild sexual expression that a couple has together. Um, it's more about the connection, the closeness, the vulnerability that exists there, the respect, the trust that exists there versus the quietness or the reverence that sexual expression is um, is expressed in. Um, so it can be very wide ranging. It can very much be uh, a, a quiet, reverent, slow, calm uh, sexual encounter and be spiritual. But it can also be all of those things and, and, and not feel very spiritual. Um, and it can also not be very spiritual and be lively and vibrant and erotic. But it could also be extremely spiritual and lively vibrant, erotic, and, and, and wild. So, uh, hopefully that, that makes sense. So, um, uh, so going back to this idea of, of sexual fantasy, um, it's, it's the lack of or absence of sexual fantasy is actually a, one of the criterion for the, the diagnosis of uh, sexual interest arousal disorder for men and women, the absence of or lack of sexual desire um, and decrease in that. And so um, what I'm putting out there and proposing is that um, 
healthy couples and individuals will engage in sexual fantasy about their um, their spouse and in their relationship. Um, and they they the way that they do that though may look very different. The way that um, a man having more of a male-centric view of sexuality and the way that a, a female having a female, more female-centric view of sexuality, the way that they fantasize about um, their sexual relationship and sexual expression may look very, very different from, from one another. Um, I once had a couple that I met with and we were on this topic and the wife said, I love this idea because I've never felt that the sexual expression for me looked anything like it does for my spouse, but I'm having such a difficult time figuring out what that should look like for me or what that does look like for me. And that's a real disservice that has, has, um, that that's out there in the world that there's just there are not very many views of female centric sexuality um but as i spoke with her and it doesn't really matter as much about what the world puts um out there um it matters more about what this individual or what each of us figures out f- uh, fits for for us as individuals and so as i explored with her um she said you know when when i s- spend time um you know getting ready and feeling good about myself and feeling like i took care of myself um and and thinking about how much i care about my spouse and uh thinking about um you know these types of things i actually noticed myself longing for and desiring um a, a sexual encounter with with my spouse and thinking about more sexually erotic things um when when i've done that and when i've you know exercised in the morning and and those types of things and for the, for her um that that fit and that that was a way in which she built her sexual desire um or or a place for her sexual desire to exist and then um, arousal to happen and then the way in which she fostered her sexual arousal um, uh, followed. You know, she would would have sexual thoughts and she would think about, you know, the events that might lead up to um, a sexual encounter that she'd have with with her spouse. And um, so, so for her, she was able to find her view of sexual uh, sexuality, her centric view of sexuality didn't have to fit a male centric or female centric or anyone else's version of sexuality. She found what fit for her and was able to own that and was able to to be okay with uh, her view or her way of uh, or her sexual scripts being different. All right, I um, I want to move over to. Um, to this this idea of um, every sexual encounter leading to uh, sexual uh, sexual intercourse um, or um, pressure within the sexual relationship, and you'll know a little bit more what I say uh, of what I'm talking about as I continue to to expound upon upon this idea. Um, what happens for a, in a lot of couple relationships is the higher desire partner will um, sometimes unwittingly, other times purposefully, push for um, a full-on sexual intercourse each time that a bid is made by them or by their spouse for physical or sexual or even emotional intimacy. 
So um, maybe the cuddles, the couple's cuddling on the couch, and there's some sexual touch, or there's some kissing, or um, there's deep, you know, emotional connection or conversation. Um, and what can happen for couples is whenever there is this, this these different forms of expression, um, what can be detrimental is when that exists, and it always leads to intercourse. Um, or always leads to penetrative sex, what, ha- what can happen is that the lower desire partner can, not, uh, can avoid or, or um, not engage as often as they would like in those deep conversations, in that connection, in that physical touch, in that sexual stimulation, because they anticipate that their higher desire partner spouse will expect, look forward to, and assume that these um, bids made by their spouse or made by them are going to, uh, if accepted, are going to almost always or always lead in intercourse or orgasm. Uh, Then the spouse that is the lower desire or that may take um, a little bit of time deciding if they want to to have a more... sexual encounter or have orgasm, have an orgasm or have intercourse, um, where they don't already know if that's what they want, they will, um, they will hold back from making bids or they will, um, not accept bids from their spouse because there is a fear and concern that if they do, it's going to lead to a fight or an argument or disappointment, um, or their partner feeling rejected. And so what what it would be healthy for most couples to do is to have um, various forms of physical touch, of sexual touch, some of which lead to intercourse, some of which lead to orgasm, some of which are just enjoyable in and of themselves, some of which are short or longer, um, uh, some that lead from one place to another place, um, from this sexual touch to that sexual touch, um, but don't go to intercourse or orgasm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the, the physical touch exists outside of um, just the prelude or foreplay for intercourse or orgasm, that there is hand-holding, that there's massaging, that there's um, playful touch, that there's loving, sensual touch, that there's in, um, emotionally intimate connecting touch. Um, and, uh, likewise with verbal expression, with emotional expression, that there are various forms of, uh, of this that exist in the couple's relationship. Um, and then the, the lower desire partner will not, um, be as, as hesitant to accept or to make these bids because they know that if, they do not want to have intercourse or do not want to have an orgasm, that it's okay. That what exists in this couple relationship is way more varied than just either we don't do any of that stuff or we go, you know, quote unquote, all, all the way with, with that. Um, in regards to foreplay, I want to quickly mention that most of the time, um, 
I, I discussed this in the female sexual response cycle, but I, I feel like it's important to mention again um, for foreplay, the lower desire partner or the partner that takes a little bit more time to build sexual arousal, which is oftentimes, but not always, uh, the, the wife, um, that it's important that enough foreplay exists for her. Um, it's also important that uh, sex does not become routine, it, that it's not always at the end of the night that it's not always the last thing on the list, that it's not always done um, when, um, when the, they are, the couple is entirely exhausted, um, that it is at times when they are, um, you know, they still have energy um, or they're, um, they feel very lively and very energetic because it's the beginning of the day. Um, that sex is uh, not always in the same position, not always um, with the same song on. You know, that routine predictability kills sexual desire. Um, it needs to be, be varied. Um, that's more of the frill, but the, the thrill comes in the connection, the closeness, the vulnerability, the trust, um, the, the mutuality of sexual expression. So you know, a couple is not able to revitalize their sexual relationship just because they change the time that they have sex or um, the position that they're in or the room that they have sex in. Um, those things will help and be highly beneficial and build sexual desire only when all of the thrill things, the connection, the closeness, the mutuality, the trust, the respect, the love, you know, the connection, all that stuff, when that's present, then all of the rest will um, have, have a significant impact. All right, that's it for today in this episode. Um, once again, this is just a, a sex therapist sitting in a chair, an armchair in Pleasant Grove, Utah, talking about sex. Till next time.